my name is Jesse Dram, and this is the I Hate Infinite Jazz Podcast, episode 13. Our guest this week is Ryan Gallick. Ryan is a musician and a music teacher who reached out to me. He's a fan of the show. He actually wrote a, a composition, musical composition, called uh, Fellow De Say, that... Uh, written for woodwinds, or maybe just winds, I don't know. You can check it out at ryangallick.com. I'm going to put some clips in here. But yeah, he wrote a, a musical composition based on Infinite Jest and David Foster Wallace that dealt specifically with suicide. Again, you can find him at ryangallick.com, and uh, you can find him on social media at ryan underscore gallick. That is G-A-L-I-K. Yeah, we have a very musical episode in general here. As you guys may have noticed, I've been tinkering around with the guitar and the keyboard a little bit around here. Uh, I hope you liked my fun little Eschaton song last week. This week, I was legit. I was inspired to write a just a regular song, just no jokes, just heartfelt. Uh, the entire chapter we discuss here, pages. 343 to 375, dealing with the Boston AA and the White Flaggers and the Crocodiles. Uh, I wanted to take a stab and actually write a song just about some of the stuff happening in the scene and what it made me feel. So I, I played it for my girlfriend Perry from Footnote Episode 1, This Is Water, and her biggest complaint seemed to be that my keyboards are shitty, and I don't disagree. And also, I do have a tendency, you might have noticed the Eschaton thing, I do enjoy singing outside my register, so if your dogs start howling, I'm sorry. I just, I listen to heavy metal. I gotta hit those high notes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is nerve-wracking. So here's a legit song I wrote. It is called uh, Crocodile's Kiss. out the side, paints this destination last upon a map, but what she doesn't know is many roads have led to ruin, she's just the latest on this path, she had no choice she says was me or her, and so she chose to remove the mask and wear it for herself. She has not walked alone here They've all arrived to hear it for themselves So wave a white flag and kiss this crocodile Who long ago surrendered his bite Happily toothless can swallow a chew It's the only way to win this fight So wave your white flag and come and kiss this just grateful for one more night There's a miracle waiting If you only can be patient By biting away at one day At a time
don't don't judge me too harshly. Believe it or not, like this act before I got into comedy, before even I got into podcasting, I was a musician first and foremost. I recorded uh an album with the band Great Neck. I don't think it was ever released anywhere. I recorded the composite the the scores for three different films. One of them won I think it was just Best Music that was at the uh, Houston Comedy Film Festival, which sounds like a big deal. But, I mean, we had a great time. They were great people. But when you actually go there, it's like, oh, they only had so many people and everybody got some award. So, I mean, hey, pleasure to be nominated. And I was any excuse to drive out to Houston in 2013, 2012. I don't know. It was my last big road trip. But, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um so yeah, music was my original love. It, unfortunately, like many of my other loves, it uh, never worked out properly, and it left me for somebody with a bigger dick. So I decided to kick music by the side and do comedy instead. But I don't know. It's This is probably the first original song, non-comedy song I've written in like six years. It felt, it felt good there. Still the same old problems. I love singing outside my register. And uh, my verbiage tends to be way too much to fit into the meter of the song, but fuck it, it's there. Somebody wrote in this week. Oh god, you know I'm gonna look her up real quick. I know what. Yeah, she doesn't want her full name out there, I guess. So I'll just put her. Emily on Reddit wrote in saying that she just binge listened to the first twelve episodes. Uh, you've talked repeatedly about how this podcast has taken off in a way you didn't expect, leaving you with a conundrum about how to keep it going once you finish the book. So here is my suggestion. One so obvious, I can't believe no one has suggested already. When you are finished, start over from page one. Have I not given enough to you people that you want me to go through this again? It's actually not a terrible idea, and I, I might do a skim. Me and Ryan specifically talk about in this week's episode how uh, going, but the, the, the non-pretentious reason to go back and read it a second time, which, in his point of view, you don't really get a full idea of what the book is without reading it a second time and seeing everything in the context it was supposed to be in, which uh, I don't fucking want to, but I might. I might just reread it again. I'm going to at least do a skim. Because here's the thing. I like the book enough at this point that I want to see where it goes. I want to get as I want to get as much out of this rotten orange husk while I can. Before chucking it into the winds and forgetting about it forever. But uh, my, my whole thing is just I have so many books I want to read. And guys, it is really hard. You know, reading the 30 or so pages every week and then summarizing them and then setting everything up for the podcast, it's really hard to read that and read anything else and really retain everything. I have been crawling through the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, I read a few short ones. I got a short book, a short stories book from Harlan Ellison, uh, Franz Kafka's short stories. I just ordered the complete plays of Brennan Behan. That what I'm interested in. I'm looking forward to reading, uh, what is it, The, the Queer Fellow? Um, yeah, you know what's funny? I had actually gone into that. Like, you know, I think I'm going to take Cousin Frank's lead, and it's time I start reading some works by, you know, women or people of color or gay people or trans writers, and I immediately got distracted. Like, ooh, a fat, dead Irish guy from the 50s. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, let's, it, it's not quite, it's not as much expanding my, uh, expanding my horizons as it is just like spinning a globe around and like see i mean i went the whole way around and got back here 
Um, yeah, Emily also suggested doing a live episode on Twitch. I don't know anything about Twitch. Um, I don't know. You guys tell me that. Would you be interested in a live episode? I don't. Like, we could do something like that. Again, I like changing the format and having on different guests and trying different things. I've had enough listeners come on the podcast. Maybe it's time for all of us to just have an episode together where if you want, like, we can pick out what uh, chapter we're going to do beforehand. You can all read up. We'll meet online at a specific time, and you guys can write in your thoughts or questions. Maybe that thought is, you're too stupid to understand this book, 420 Smoke Weed, every day. In which case, hey, you have a point. That is constructive feedback. So if that's something you guys would do, I don't know. Hit me up. Give me some ideas. What do you guys want out of this shit? I'm just a dickhead in his way too hot second bedroom slash office slash studio talking into a microphone. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Guys, we're all just kind of floating along in life. So let me know what you want. I am at Jesse Dram on most things. At Diamond Joe Quim on Reddit. Not to be dirty, I just hit the character limit. And uh, Mr. Jessica on YouTube at jessedram at gmail.com. Yeah, let's just get into the episode. This is a really good episode. Ryan has a lot of uh, interesting thoughts on a lot of these things. And also, he fully admits, is like, I'm not quite a David Foster Wallace bro, but like, I'm not far off. Like he gets it, he gets it. He's a, he's a smart kid, and I feel I felt bad because I had no idea his age, and then I just asked at some point, and he said 24. And even though I hate it when people do this, I immediately went like, "Ah, oh, you're just a baby." Like I did everything but reach through the, the computer screen and pinch his cheek. Like, "Go oh, on, you little guy." Nah, he's a uh, very interesting. Uh, we're gonna go into this episode. With I'm going to start the uh, podcast episode out with some of his uh, fellow to say, and we're going to go into a little bit of it right now, and maybe I'll throw a little bit at the end too, but yeah, go in there, check the description, go to YouTube, and go watch it. There's more public performances planned once all this COVID nonsense is done. Yeah, very, very up-and-coming uh, composer. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of him. So, episode 13, Pages. 343 to 375, Ryan Gallick. And again, the name of his composition is Fellow Say, And I doubt I'm pronouncing that right. Right here we are. I hate infinite jest. Lucky number thirteen, pages three forty-three to three seventy-five. 
my guest this week from my home state of New Jersey. Well, I, God damn it, I'm fucking up already. Uh, at least went to college in my home state of New Jersey. Ryan Gallic. Gaelic, how you doing? <laughs> doing good, doing good. You got it right. I went to school here, but I grew up in Central Jersey, South Jersey, whatever. I don't want to get into politics right away, but no, in the area. I want to know. I want to know what your definition <laughs> of Central Jersey, South Jersey is, because some people claim it doesn't exist. And some people think it's the forgotten bastard stepchild of New Jersey. I personally am in Camden County. So for me, Central Jersey is that area where uh, pretty much where there's a, a lot of layover between a little hangover between like their equal amount giants and eagles, equal mm-hmm. amount devils and flyers. Yeah, for me, uh, Central Jersey stops at Princeton. I know some people go a bit north, Ooh. but what I've heard I like is the Wawa quick check rule. If there's Wawa's, you're in South Jersey. If there's quick checks, you're in north. And if there's both, you're in Central. I agree with that 100%. I remember I was like 20 years old and I was looking for a drummer in a band and uh, a guy hit me up from around Fort Dix. And I went in and we went down to his basement to practice. And the very first thing I saw was a Martin Brodeur, New Jersey Devils poster on the wall. And I said, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> and it didn't. So, <laughs> uh, so Ryan, you reached out to me when uh, you, found, you found the existence of the podcast. And you told me that you had actually written a, a band composition in relation to Infinite Jest. I would say inspired, but I'll leave that to you to explain that more clearly for for uh, your, your college band. If you could tell us more about that, please. And I'll be posting links and probably clips throughout this episode. So. Yeah, so um, what I could do is, there's a bit of a program note before the piece starts, which I think might be interesting to read. I can get you that too. But um, okay. the piece is called Fellow de Say, which I think I heard on a previous podcast like that Wallace kind of had an affinity toward referring to suicide as that. And that's where it came from. But um Basically, the piece is a musical representation of the Kubler-Ross model of grief, which most people don't know by name, but it's the five stages. So you got denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And like my goal was to, um, to represent these five stages musically in kind of a way that the ultimate thing with it is to understand what a difficult kind of, um, process depression can be and like other things that lead people to take their own lives and while mental health is very important and getting people these resources if it's too late it's really important i think to have some sort of forgiveness i know a lot of people that have lost loved ones lost family or even like celebrities i think this applies anywhere like that we have this level of resentment or whatever and it's a very complicated thing but what i wanted to do with the music is kind of say hey like understand that this is a pretty nasty thing. And if you haven't been through it yourself, try to have a little bit more open-mindedness and forgiveness before you judge these people that have done this. And there was a lot about like Wallace's journey in there and how um, I think you did come to this part because it's um, it's that whole list of things he says that he learned in AA. Mm. Um, and one of them is no moment is in and of itself unendurable. So like when I read that and then learned he killed himself, I, I was like, well, which is it? And what I wanted to do was kind of like make sense of it in my own head and say, well, you know, maybe it's fair to think that there's more to life than enduring. And even though he knew he could get to the next day, the next day, the next day, you can't judge someone for thinking that they want a little bit more out of life than just the bare minimum of making it to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a bit of a heavy start. <laughs> but, no, 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 that's fine. Yeah. That's, uh... 
Yeah, actually, I wouldn't mind discussing that topic a little bit. I remember just in the course of my own life, the uh, the, the the public perception around suicide has changed a lot. Because I remember when I was young, um, how, how old are you, if you don't want me to ask him? 24. A, a baby. Sorry. Prime uh, infinite just age. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, so I'm born uh, 1986, which means I was roughly seven, eight years old around 1994. So people in my generation, I feel like, Kurt Cobain was such a huge if you well I, I was a young kid my parents were young so they still listened to like modern music so maybe depending on the age you might not have been as aware of that but my parents being young and still listening to modern music like this big rock star killed himself and for so that's my first introduction to suicide and number two like he's a rock star why would he want to kill himself that's like pretty much the peak of all human accomplishment is becoming a rock star but uh, again, just in the course of my lifetime, I have seen the big switch from like, oh, that's so goddamn selfish to, uh, you know, the really kind of empathizing with like, God, what would really drive somebody to that? Absolutely. I think Robin Williams was kind of an example that helped change that perspective because with him, it wasn't this like sexy rock star, can't take the lifestyle or whatever. It was like, here's someone that was a source of joy for everybody. And I think a lot of us didn't expect that to happen. And it was okay. kind of like, well, we, maybe we need to see a little bit more of what's going on beneath the surface. Um, I, I might be in the minority here, but uh, there are a few cases, and I would say Robin Williams is one of them, where I can actually look at suicide as like, oh, that's like a kind of a brave, heroic thing they did. Like for him specifically... Again, this would depend very much upon what it actually was as somebody who did suffer from depression, which he did. But uh, like a lot of the information out there that like he was starting to uh, suffer from dementia, like they, what was that, Louis, Louis Body Parkinson's, something. But he was mm -hmm. starting to have problems with dementia. So he was kind of losing himself. And I don't know, there's a little bit of that, like particularly for somebody who struggled with sobriety so much as him famously, to like have such a grasp on your life and like to all just be controlling your brain, controlling your life and then feel it slipping away from you anyway and deciding like, I don't, I don't want this. I fought my whole life and now I'm, I'm losing it in a different direction. Fuck this. So I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So God, suicide's a bummer. It's it, when I really looked into his, my, my personal thoughts on David Foster Wallace have changed so much just to, and I say that like I they're not solid yet I still don't know what they are they might change again tomorrow but leading into this just thinking like oh well surely this is a guy who just thought he was smarter than everybody in the room was a dickhead etc and part of that's true but seems like he was also very much beloved and uh that God, when I first read about that that he went off that medication because it was really like bad for him and that it figuring, oh, I've been on this for 20 years. I can get off it. Turns out he couldn't get off it. And then when he went back on it, it wasn't working anymore. Like that kind of depression spiral must, must have been fucking in. Well, obviously we see what it ended in. So it definitely was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think like a lot of what people talk about with him and like his personal side away from the books is like, was his character a facade or was he really that unsure about himself? And I took a while, it was after I had read most of his, his books that I sat down and um, went through Every Love Story is a Ghost Story by D.T. Max, which mm. 
um, was this kind of like notorious thing at the time because I remember seeing all those Brett Easton Ellis tweets like after and during reading it saying like, oh, this guy's a hoax, this guy's everything. But when I sat down and read it, like I thought it was a very fair account. It's not putting him in a really great light or a bad light. I think that it, you know, it highlighted both. And it was just an honest tale that probably the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I have no issue with that concept of the author's public persona as a hoax. Like one of my, I, I, I'm a huge Vonnegut fan. And there was an unauthorized biography that came out a few years ago that pretty much just said like, oh no, he was a very bitter, disappointed old man. And I know some people were like, ah, it ruins the whole thing. But like for me, it's like, no, I want to know he was real. Cause obviously, what sense does that make? Like, oh yeah, I'm a hippy dippy speaker for the flower kids who also saw the bombing of a cultural city in Germany, you know, rendered to ashes. But I'm all about peace and love, man. Like I, I don't know. I like the dirt. For me, the dirty parts are what make the image, but. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, ooh, we actually went too far. Do you have anything to promote right now anywhere we can find you on uh, social media? You know, I got um, my own website recently. It's just my full name, ryankalick.com. I have a Twitter, Instagram. I'm just not even active enough on them to share it. But you. my YouTube channel is good if you want to check out my music. That's just my name too. Okay. Yeah. Is that like your main thing? Music? Is that what you're trying to do? Yeah. So I, um, I graduated from school with a bachelor in music ed to become like a teacher and I've been teaching music full time for three years, but I'm trying to do a lot of composition stuff on the side and, you know, um, a lot of virtual projects coming up right now with everything going on, but wherever I can, it's just, you know, that's a fun little realm to be in as well. Nice. Okay. All right, so let's uh, let's get into our notes here. Three forty-three to three seventy-five. I was speaking with Ryan before this. I hadn't realized setting this up that this is pretty much one long scene, a, a classical chapter, which we do not have much of in this book. All right, so um, without getting too much into it, do you have any knowledge of uh, AA in general? Without, I, I don't need to know anything about your backstory. Well, I'll admit right now, most of what I know about AA is from the book, which okay. might be like an indication that I don't know anything at all. But after my first read, I did feel like, oh, I know a decent amount. And that could be totally wrong, but well, that's see, what I, I know. Okay. See, I myself do not know it personally. I have a lot of uh, loved ones, particularly in my family, are in recovery. They're in the program. So I know some of this and some things in here I I'm unfamiliar with, but I actually have those notes, so we can get to that. Um, So it is still Interdependence Day, year of the uh, Depend Adult Undergarment. By the way, Ryan, uh, just if you have anything to say at any point, feel free to interrupt, and I will ask you questions at points. Uh, We're at the Boston AA, which we're told is like nowhere else, but our first told how it is exactly like everywhere else how the AA groups subdivide into mini groups with their own names, how most of them are speaker meetings where recovering members share their experience, strength, and hope. So this is uh, the first one. Speaker meetings are definitely a thing. Um, eh, fuck it, she doesn't have my same last name. Uh, my mother is in the program, so it's technical anonymity. But uh, I remember she asked me to come to her very first speaker thing, which was interesting for me because she always had stage fright which I didn't realize it was only like a year or two ago. She told me that like, yeah, when you were young and you would like, you know, play shows or be in a school play, I was terrified for you every time. Like really? Yeah. Like, 
Like how? Like I thought you were gonna fuck something up. Like why did you say that? Because I would have fucked something up. Like oh okay. Uh-huh. But uh, these speakers meetings were interesting because she'd go up and she'd tell her story and yeah, it's pretty much exactly what you have in this book. Um, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the speaker meetings. Um, in this chapter and other parts when they come up, I think like when I think back on the book now, what I remember most are like some of those stories that are just these little isolated things, like in the middle of a chapter about like what we'll talk about in a bit, like the girl that comes up and is telling her story. And that is like the stuff that even years later, I still, it sticks with me. It's a hell of a story and we will definitely get to that. Um, So this is the part I'm unfamiliar with. The speakers tend to never speak to their own groups the speakers who travel between different groups are called commitments. Commitments is a, not is a completely new concept to me, but again, maybe that's something that makes Boston AA just that special. <laughs> um, okay, we have a glossary of terms here. Uh, giving it away, that is from the phrase, you give it up and get it back to give it away. Sobriety isn't seen as owned, but as a cosmic loan. You can't pay it back, so you pay it forward. If it works for you for a day, you let it be known at a meeting and give it to a newbie in the back who feels zero hope at the moment. Basics of AA, it's only possible through the group. Uh, getting active with your group, which is wasting a vast amount of day traveling as a commitment to ultimately only speak six minutes at a plywood podium. We have losses, self-explanatory. Coming in, which is the step after rock bottom, admitting shit is out of control and making the first attempts to do the work. Identification, empathy with the speaker. This is easier with more experienced speakers who know not to make the listeners squirm too much and thus lose their empathy. The goal is to identify and not compare. I'm going to get more into that. Someone whose story is too grotesque leads to comparison, which doesn't help. Um, yeah, you know, I've considered going into AA before. I'll, I, I've hinted at it a few times. I have a light drinking problem in that it doesn't really cost me anything, but I do drink more days than I don't. So just, just yeah. kind of happens. I, if I, if I was 22, I would be considered perfectly normal and healthy, <laughs> but I'm 33. So, <laughs> um, in the crowd at the Boston area meeting in Enfield is Don Gately. Love spending more time with Gately. It's noted that he is so massive that the direct areas behind him are empty for rows. He's prone to distraction and likes to sit up front so close he can see the speaker's pores and truly listen with only yeah, them I, in his field of vision. I just think it's so funny. I mean, I remember on a previous episode, you're talking about the frustration that they only describe Mario after 300 pages to give you a clear <laughs> image. But at the same time, he's like every single time Don Gately has to come up, he, he needs to remind you three different ways how big he is. He's like, just oh, in yeah. case you forgot, this is, he's actually a square. Like it's <laughs> every time. See, it's, this has been interesting since uh, the first episode we had Dan Ostrov on and Dan Ostrov is in like the local scene of uh, comedians with me. And he told me that the first time he saw Shane Gillis, who famously uh, got on SNL last year and then was fired within a week after old clips from his podcast came out of him saying, mm. some, I'll be charitable and say racial stuff. But this is a guy I'd seen around the open mics before. And as soon as Dan said, the first time I saw him, he's like, oh, that's Don Gately. Because the, the guy used to be an offensive lineman, and he, he even jokes about he just looks like a big dumb oaf. So that is exactly how I picture him. Just like yep. this huge guy just staring at, just doing his best to think and not be distracted by the world. 
Yeah, my 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 picture of him is a little bit too close to basically Wreck It Ralph, except <laughs> maybe like an R-rated Wreck It Ralph see, in some ways. I can see that Wreck It Ralph with a Prince Valiant haircut. When Just I look all at, right angles. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, and also there is Joelle Van Dyne, who got bumped up the waiting list at Ennett by her doctor after treating her for the overdose. So this is, uh, I, I had somebody email me last week, really getting into the details of how this uh, book is structured like the Sierpinski gasket, which is the triangles yeah. on triangles and triangles. And I think this is definitely it there where this, it, it doesn't particularly charm me just because I can see the structure behind it. But that really is this kind of like breadcrumb storytelling where it's like, like we've had Joella doesn't really apply to because we've heard so much about her but a lot of people who show up in this like uh, Erdity Erdity who was just mentioned very early in the book and then you know not given any context of where that person is existing in the grand realm of the thing and then oop, oh he's here so I mean I, I understand I feel like there is a little bit like a almost like a video game you know how they say like Minecraft it does like some kind or Facebook how it has some kind of uh, norepinephrine reward, serotonin reward, like yeah. Yeah, like the candy crush you get. I almost feel like this book operates on that because you get a little almost like treasure hunty, like, aha, there he is this whole time. Yeah, I mean, this might sound a little crazy, but I think like the whole book in some ways is like that on micro and macro levels. Like there are some parts in the story <clears throat> and I congratulate you through getting through Eschaton because that is like, I mean, um, I love tennis and I know it's not totally tennis based, but like as a huge fan of this book, that is tough to get through. But at the same time, like the reward for that is almost a chapter like this, I think, where it's just like real stuff. Um, and a lot of this chapter reminds me of like some of the stuff that he said in This Is Water, like in a little bit of a different context, but like the value of cliches and about like day-to-day -day living and just um, trusting that a process will get you through and being honest and everything. But at the same time, like, and this is the part where it's a, it's a bit crazy. I sometimes get like those little micro rewards from him on like a sentence to sentence basis. Cause something he does is he really plays with the sentence structure. And there's this thing like, I mean, you know, at this point, he's got some sentences and there was one on page, I wrote it down somewhere, three, 357, it's all, no, sorry, 353 is all one sentence. And like some of the page before, some of the page after, and he just wields these like clauses together in these cool ways that like make these little connections in your brain, like, okay, I'm following this. And like the subject of the sentence and then a whole bunch of middle stuff. And at the end, when you kind of like are able to connect this huge thought, it's like, it's almost in a way kind of a reward. And maybe I'm like giving him way too much credit, but I do kind of get this feeling of like finishing a sentence with him sometimes is a reward in and of itself. <laughs> okay. Do you have that sentence highlighted by any chance? I actually don't have my copy of the book with me, but I'm, I'm a little curious to see what that sentence is. Well, so it's a lot of things, but um, it starts with um, Gately this morning, just after required AM meditation, uh, going through all that stuff. And then he's talking about Gene M and Pat Montagian and the shouts of the white flaggers keep on coming. And he wouldn't dream 
of actually calling their phone numbers and stuff. And it's just like a bunch of things. Like there's no reason I think it had to be one sentence. It's basically the same stuff he's been talking about, but this just has this sort of, um, I don't know. It's like this one connected idea. The weird thing with him is I don't, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but like when you hit these sentences or like even sometimes there's no paragraph break for three pages, do you oh, feel yeah. like it's exhausting or do you feel like he's able to kind of keep the pacing up as long as it lasts? It depends for me specifically about what he's talking about. Um, I remember I noted in the last yeah. episode with the eschaton where he was describing action that actually, to me, it, it felt appropriate there because it's because it's a bunch of things happening at once. It would make sense for them to be in that entire paragraph, and kind of con it's kind of conveying the the breakdown of uh, yeah the the, the 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 breakdown into chaos as it is happening. Mm -hmm. But he also does that at points where it's just tiny pinpointed details that to me don't really end in a big pic in, in right. a visible picture or a picture at least i thought was worth looking at and that's the stuff where it really loses me where we get to some of those like four five six seven page paragraphs yeah no absolutely so it, it, it's just like anything else if it's engaging you can pull all kinds of tricks it's just a lot of it to me you know wasn't engaging but the, the good thing is we're getting to more engaging stuff as I, the book goes on, I find. Um, okay. Speaker John L. speaks, quote, when I was drunk, I wanted to get sober. And when I was sober, I wanted to get drunk. I lived that way for years. And I submit to you, that's not living. That's a fucking death in life. A lot of detail on the torture of wanting to quit, but still drinking anyway and the anguish that brings. And that after throwing away this false friend, it reveals its true nature in the withdrawal, becoming a disgusting green monster of vomiting and withdrawal and shaking and pain. Or a, a reference to the gaping mall face in the floor. And you reach the lowest point known as bottom, though it's noted most people paradoxically think of it as a cliff with nowhere else to go. Where you hate it so much, you must decide whether to quit living and die or begin to remember how to live without the substance. Yeah, this is very much, very much AA. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad my particular problems have not led anywhere near this, but. Ugh. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I can't speak, like I can't relate to it or even I don't have a big friend group of people that I could talk about and relate to this. Um, but from like reading this the first time it is, I think very moving. And like, if this is an accurate picture of what AA is like, it almost kind of makes me want to sit in on some just to, to like be a, a fly on the wall and kind of see like some of this, what's going on. They're actually totally cool. If you do that, they really don't care at all because I've, mm -hmm. I, I, I've gone there as you know, well, for one thing, here's the thing. Even if you go there, just as a fly on the wall and somebody approaches you and you say, Oh, I'm just here to watch. They won't believe you anyway. They're going yeah. to think you have some, okay, sure, yeah. I remember when I came in here without a problem. But uh. Yeah, but God forbid I go in there and there's 10 other Infinite Jets fans who had the same idea and there's actually no alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's actually a really fun idea for like a sketch or even like a, a, a very short novel, just like a bunch of people who are all there for the purpose of voyeurism and yet there's nothing to actually view. God, that's... That's David Foster Wallace a lot right there. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, talk about the pain of looking into the phone book and calling AA that will dispatch two members early morning. You're left with the feeling of not remembering anything they said in their eerie calmness, but the overwhelming notion that they have been right where you are. 
pardon me, the general idea of coming in and giving it a try. People come up with excuses why they're above it or better than the program. But as the old AA adage goes, a adage, nobody ever comes in because things were going really well. You need this place and you know it. See, so he's fascinated. I think he's fascinated with a lot of uh, what I'm similarly fascinated with the way AA works because it is very paradoxical because I've had friends who have clearly had troubles and yet they're able to logically like jujitsu their way out of like why why none of this applies to me and mm-hmm. I do feel like a lot of those cliches the importance of that is cutting through that bullshit right there because you know uh, another line that comes up I actually have this here in my notes is people who overanalyze the program and are annoyed at how it works without explanation are often greeted with the wise line, my best thinking is what got me here. So like, if, if you're here, this is where your logical brain has gotten you. So clearly logic has already failed you, yet you are still, you're still clinging to it like a lifeboat, though it is clearly full of holes because you're drowning. Yeah, absolutely. I know if, if I was someone that ever needed to go to AA, I would definitely get frustrated by the way that it's just kind of like blind acceptance. And even if you don't believe, say you do because it'll work. And, you know, like that's got to be a tough thing for, I think, a lot of people um, who kind of need that logic or whatever to, mm-hmm. to get through. But yeah, I guess uh, there's something to be said about, you know, like the truth of cliches. And like you said, cutting right through all of that, just getting to cut the BS, even if it's true. And let's just start from square one. Exactly. And that's how they tend to deal with the atheist problem, because a lot of people like, you know, well, I don't believe in God, so I'm not going to put it in the hands of God. But the, it, like I said, the really important thing is they really it, it, it does have kind of like an Eastern bent to it, because the whole idea is you, you need to remove yourself from the equation because like, you know, that is where the problem exists. So the more the more power you put into and uh, recognize as the self the more you are feeding that problem which is the self it is in the community it is in the whole where you know where you find solace um we have more from the speaker you are not unique the initial hopelessness unites every soul coming in desperate in pain is the first uniting experience the second is when the program actually begins to work this happened to gately at some point four months in where he realized he'd gone days without thinking of the substance this ties directly into grieving, I think, because I remember when I've had a big death in my life, like there's always the initial pain, which is like just being hit with a cannonball. Mm-hmm. But the more crazy thing after is like, I still remember after my father died, it was about nine months later where I just realized, oh, I just went like two or three days without thinking about my dad and the fact that yeah. he was gone. Like the first time that happens is so huge because you can feel like, you're, you're, and same thing with addiction. It's your subconscious brain just going like, okay, we, it, it, you're, the fact that your brain itself has the agency aside from you and you're unconscious to go like, okay, we should be wrapping up on this and move on to something else. Yeah, no, absolutely. That kind of almost ties in with like the five stages of grief thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember like writing the piece. What I found is like, you'll never find a reputable medical clinic that will tell you how long each stage is supposed to last because it's so different for everybody. But like when I was trying to structure it, I was thinking, well, are these all the the same length, like all five stages, but based on like averages, depression is so ridiculously longer than the rest. 
that if the other oh, movements dude, were going to be like a minute, depression would be like a year of music. Oh, yeah. Just the fact that they're all numbered. One of the, one of the things that gets lost in that is the fact that they're all equally numbered as opposed to, I almost think bargaining, it should be the four steps and bargaining should be three B because it, it almost indicates these are all of equal importance. I can't think of, I think I've had maybe like 40 minutes total of bargaining in any stage of grief I've been on, but that's just how I'm wired yeah. as a person. Yeah, they actually, um, the, the model has been updated. It is now seven stages. Um, which I just don't think is as like a sexy of a title. So even though that was yeah. true when I wrote the piece, I stuck with five, especially since it's basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. I know that they switched denial to uh, trauma and, sh and I think it was trauma and then denial or something like that. Like basically the same idea, but just like breaking it apart a little bit. And I'm not positive if bargaining made it in or if it is kind of like a 3B or something because it definitely doesn't okay. seem... Yeah, no. If we're if we're doing an American Idol of the stages of grief, bargaining bargaining is on the chopping block every week. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, uh, happened to Gately at some point four months in, where he realized he'd gone days without thinking of the substance, which previously would have been an impossibility. Uh, less than shock, he was more filled. Uh, less than gratitude, he was more filled with shock. It was that unlikely. Another binding commonality in the program is a genuine bafflement that any of this works because it doesn't make any sense. You pray to a God you don't believe in and go through the robotic machinations you don't believe in, but it turns out it doesn't need your belief to work. All it needs is the time. Come in, hang in one day at a time, submit. And then I have the, my best thinking is what got me here. Um, at the meeting of 50 year old Irish immigrant bus driver waxes lyrical about quitting booze and having the first solid shit in his entire life. That's a story. <laughs> oh yeah. There's a lot of scatological stuff there because I, you know, people who are really uh, coming out of it, like their, their bodies are fucking ravaged. You know, they get the oh, shit. Yeah. Wallace, I think Wallace liked writing about that. There's um, a, a, I can't, I always refer to his short stories as short stories, but they're not short. So mm. Um, one of the stories in, I think it's Oblivion, which personally I like better than Infinite Jest. Like, I think it's a, it's kind of like what you are always talking about with this book. Like there's a perfectly good 300 page book in here. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's almost like that. Like oh, it's, that, that's the 300 page book. Well, it's, um, oh. it might be like 400. There's like, it's okay. weird because <laughs> there's a, there's a story in there. It's my favorite piece of literature of all time, let alone from him called Good Old Neon. Um, but there's like also a three page story in there. But the first one um, is literally all about shit. It's about, um, no, maybe it's not the first one. But in any case, there's one that's literally about um, a journalist that is really interested in this guy that's able to poop out pieces of art, like recreate statues and stuff. And he's like really trying to sell his magazine on letting him cover the story. And like, I guess kind of the joke of it is that instead of letting him cover shit, they're making him cover other shit. That's not <laughs> literal shit, but is like, you know, commenting on shit. And the whole thing is just this big shitty story. <laughs> <laughs> just makes me think of it, I guess, but definitely yeah. worth it. That's, that might be something I look into when I'm done the book proper. Um, Okay, Gately's primary asset as an ended house staffer, aside from his massive size, massive size, is his personal story of hating AA and resenting all the bullshit and cliches at first. 
tells them the best thing about AA is they can't kick you out. Encourages them to try to shock AA people into ostracizing them. It won't work. Glenn Kay, I love the character of Glenn Kay, is a member who chose Satan as his higher power, who wears a makeup and uh, who wears a cape and makeup and carries a candelabra. Now, he's not particularly well liked, but he's still a welcome member regardless. You can go up and scream at the group and tell them what losers and sheep they are and wish ill on them, and they'll just nod and say, keep it coming, and pull you aside after and tell you how much they identify with the anger you feel and how they felt the same way. Uh, Gately recounts how he was susceptible to the old heads, and one in particular that congratulated him on being so damn ballsy and full of piss and vinegar. But if you want some advice from someone who's spilled more booze than you've ever drank, maybe you should instead, uh, instead sit down, shut the fuck up, take the cotton balls from your ears, stick them in your mouth, and maybe listen for the first time in your life, and maybe you'll end up okay. Uh, this group is called the White Flaggers, which Don has joined, and the oldest among them are called the Crocodiles. And I love the concept of the Crocodiles. Yeah, um, yep. For a few reasons. One of them, oh, God. So a weird thing throughout my life is both my grandfathers were dead before I was born. Men don't live particularly long in my family. So as a result, my entire life, I am very susceptible to gruff older men who, like, want to want to pat me on the shoulder and tell me a story and so everything about the crocodiles do you so this is a question i have do you have have you found there's any particular group or like genre of person you're very susceptible to in your life that they can kind of reel you in real easy because i even though it doesn't apply to the older guys uh growing up my dad ran with like a bunch of biker gang people so like even though they were young to me, they were extremely old. And just to have like these tough bastards with like fucking stab wound scars. And you know, they wanted to talk to me about the Grinch stole Christmas. Like, yes, all day, every day. Ah, who, who's your favorite, uh, who's your favorite WWF wrestler? Yes. I will talk to you for hours. Something about that. So, yeah, you- I, I don't know if I have a group like that. Um, looking at like my friend group and the people I hang out with, it's actually pretty, pretty wide. Like the people that I'm still in touch with from high school, the people, of course, like the people I know in college are all like music teachers and we're all just kind of um, banding, banding together on mutual suffering right now. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll keep thinking about that one as we go, but okay, yeah, sure. if that comes back up, like right, I'm trying to think who else am I susceptible to? I am, yeah, definitely susceptible to older guys. I, I think that's why I fell in love with uh, Tom Waits the first time I heard him, because just like gin-soaked rummy at a piano. Just like, yes, I will sit here and not move for the entirety you want to be in front of me. Um, yeah. Okay. The Crocodiles gave Gately the whole spiel. All the young guys that came in and got cocky and figured they didn't need the program anymore and then slipped. And right down the chute they went. They end up in the disease's cage again where they'll either die or get stuck wanting to die. And if you do slip, you are still welcome back and encouraged to do so immediately. You've had enough pain, more shame will not be inflicted upon you. Um, All AA things are suggestions, but it's in the way a parachute is suggested for jumping out of a plane. You have to want to do what you're told. If you don't, your own personal will is still in control and that will is the web your disease sits and spins in still. Yeah, you know, there's actually um, something that this kind of made me think about that um, might tie into something else kind of well. 
these AA people like talking about the suggestion. That's not really a suggestion. Like they know a whole lot more than what the incoming people do, but Mm -hmm. they are not, um, they're not like crowding these people and expecting them to bow down to them with their knowledge. Like Mm. what they're trying to do is not tell them the experiences, but give them to them the same way of like letting them live through the cliches that they did and everything. I could see this so easily like go the wrong way and have these people um, go to Gately and like the new people and just say, Oh, I know how, I know what you have to do next. Here's what you have to do. And like, it almost kind of reminds me of like infinite Jess fans. And that so many, okay, I love the book. I hate the fans. Like mm-hmm. if, if I can share that um, with you, I don't know how you feel. You I guess are on you've had the some right good... podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it helps. I don't have any friends in real life that have read the book to, to suddenly hate. But, you know, the thing is like the infinite Jess fan um, go-to is, oh, I know something that you don't. Let me explain mm-hmm. it to you. Let me take you through it. But the the crocodile way is like, I know something you don't, and I want you to experience it the same way. If I, I kind of have like a little story that um, really, I think, paints a picture of what I think the problem is with fans. Absolutely. Lay it out for me. <laughs> I, I know like probably podcasting 101 is don't insult your audience directly, but... I've had to learn the hard way that okay. not always the case. That's right. <laughs> okay. Keep listening. You fucking sheep. Ryan continue. <laughs> so anyway, um, when I was in college and this is going to sound very unrelated, but I was thinking about it the other day and it will tie in right at the end. Okay. Uh, when I was in college, I had a professor uh, whose name was Bill and I'm happy to say what his name is uh, because everything I have to say about him is very good. But so Bill was um, a percussion instructor. So he would teach all the percussion students, that stuff. But also as music teachers, we had these class instrument courses, which is basically like you haven't played this, but you're going to have to teach it in a couple years. So come on down at 8 a.m. We'll stick one in front of your face and you have to learn how to play it to like a middle school level. Okay, neat. So Bill taught um, class percussion, which like maybe to some could sound like overtly simple, but when you think about percussion being like snare drums, bass drums, gongs, cymbals, um, vibraphones, marimbas, everything, like there's a ton of stuff in the percussion world. It's basically like four times the amount of instruments as any other family. And the thing about him that I still remember is that he would come into class every morning and have one of these instruments he wanted to teach us and put it in front and like play something or assemble it. And then he would talk for about 45 or 50 minutes on like the most thorough things you could imagine. Like you're talking about looking at a bass drum or a snare drum and being like, okay, I get it. And then he would explain it to you and like go through everything. Like this is what the head of the drum is made out of. And this is why. And if you want this sound, you need this drum. And this is why this is the height of it. And it actually matters. And then these are the snares. Here's how you attach them and deattach them. And if you want this sound, do this. Here are your drumsticks. You might think they're just sticks, but if they're not the same weight, both hands will sound different when you hit and you want them to sound the same. So make sure you get a pair that both weigh the same. And just like going through an hour's worth of stuff that you would like you would sit through and absorb and we would take notes. But at the end of it, we would feel like we were a master. Like, oh, I know everything there's to know about a snare drum. And the problem is we don't. Like he would let us each come up, but there was like 10, 12 of us. We would play it for about a minute in class. But the problem is we come out of class at the end 
thinking we're a master at this thing and knowing everything there is to know about it and share our wealth with the world, we have one minute of experience on the instrument. And again, like I don't have a problem with Bill's way of, of, of doing it. I think it was really helpful because I'm not looking to be a drum player. Like I'm looking to learn about it so I can teach it. But all of these people come out with like this fake or false misleading sense of mastery about something that they don't. And I got a real connection there to David Foster Wallace in that in the same way, Wallace like is very thorough, obviously like looking at a book that is, you know, the book I use whenever I bend another book to put on top to unbend it. Like <laughs> he's very thorough and he'll really dive into things at a deep level. And he's also someone that's written a lot about like postmodernism and like literary theory and stuff. And the problem is I think a lot of Infinite Jest fans are coming out of reading this book the same way I came out of percussion class, feeling like they have a lot more without the experience. And so like, I was so moved by Infinite Jest when I read it my sophomore year of college, I wanted to like learn more about postmodernism. And I started reading like Pinchon and Gaddis and stuff. But I also decided like, I'm going to write a paper for like an independent study with a professor about postmodern music. And like, what does post postmodern music look like and trying to like draw this literary music connection. And about five seconds into that, I was reading a paper on um, deconstructionism by Derrida. And I said, holy crap, I don't know a single word of this. I am so in <laughs> over my head. And it was a really important moment for me to like think, oh, I know what I'm talking about. And then hit like basic stuff with it and hit this immediate wall of wait, like I actually don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm glad, like I, I still don't. I know more than I would have just from reading the book because I like, I'm interested in it and I take, mm. I, I've read more on it. But like at the same time, First off, like I'm going to bow to any English major because they have taken full classes on this where I've read a book. But also, like, I think that's the problem. Like, I don't have a problem with David Foster Wallace the same way I don't have a problem with Bill the professor. But the students they create sometimes yeah. think they know more than they do. And that the problem is they think, oh, I'm just going to like, you know, the stereotypical, like, I'm going to share this with every woman I know or something and just, <laughs> you know, like mansplain it and stuff. And it's just no. You know, like, you know, something really interesting and he sparked your interest in postmodern literature. And maybe you do have a problem with irony, but you have no idea what irony is. If you haven't read the three decades of books that made Wallace take this opinion to know the problems. And like, it's just so much more complicated than he makes it sound sometimes, I think is the problem. Well, then again, that is really the, uh, that, 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 that's the huge thing about what makes a great writer a great writer is they take the complex and they make it digestible and, you know, manageable mm -hmm. and understandable to people. But yeah, it's, you know, that is, I think that's a problem that happens a lot with anybody who is a fan of something that would be considered genius is by, by taking it in art that is considered genius or made by a genius you feel like there's a little bit of transact. Surely some transactional genius is making its way over to me right now, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The thing I read is um, like comparing um, Infinite Jest. I think one of the books it's compared to most is Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas mm. Pinchon, which is like, talk about it, a hard book. Like Infinite Jest, I don't think it's hard. It's long and there's some interesting stuff going on, but it's mm. not difficult. And then like what I saw in a Reddit comment once is comparing the two to someone that was kind of interested in reading both. They said, um, David Foster Wallace is taking you to the baseball diamond. He's going to put you right on the plate and he's going to throw some, like some easy hitters to you and tell you how to swing the bat and, you know, help you understand what he might be throwing at you and stuff. 
and Thomas Pinchon is standing there throwing fastballs at you as fast as he can at your face and laughing at you every time you miss. And the thing is, like, which one do you come out a better swinger for? And mm. also, like, which one do you come out thinking you're a better swinger for? Which is a mm. dangerous kind of disconnect. But I don't have a problem with either. It's just what people think about themselves after they come out of that situation. All right. And, uh, unfortunately, that help, that happens to the best of us where – if you feel like you're lacking a little bit of something, you can just put it, put a nice little patch of somebody else's thoughts and ideas. And clearly the fact that you read them and remembered them is just as good as having come up with them yourself, you know? Yeah. I mean, Wallace, I, you know too, um, that he has some words that he likes to stick with, like ones that you come out of this book knowing like agoraphobic mm-hmm. is something I've encountered nowhere else, but 20,000 times in this book, or even something like fellow day say, like I learned about that through this book. And it's interesting because like, it's a Latin word that means felony of its oneself that like is kind of a loaded term when talking about suicide. Like, Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can really tell because of the words he uses and like the phrases when people are talking about these kind of issues and exactly using his verbiage. I just want to say like yeah. what you might be saying could be right, but why don't you go home and think about it in your own words and come to me when you're not just regurgitating. Right. Uh, regurgitation, unfortunately, is something people do in that. Okay. Uh, back to this. Um Oh yeah. So we still had the thing about personal will. We have another thing, the per, uh, people really wanting to rely on their personal will with, again, the point that your personal will you call your own ceased to be yours a long time ago. Otherwise you would have been able to just stop whenever you wanted, which again deals with that loss of agency without ever really having the realization that you have lost that agency where, because mm-hmm. it is a, it is a disturbing thing where your own thoughts, where you realize like, Oh, well, these are my own thoughts, but, this got put into it here and somebody put that part into it there. So it really does bring up the question, like what, just what is the self truly if we're all just a pastiche of what other people have put into us? Yeah. Um, He drops a line here that bothers me. He doesn't really go into any deeper. Uh, The line is, why is the truth not just uninteresting, but anti-interesting? Which I like that point, but he doesn't, he doesn't get into it all that much. Um, well, yeah, I, you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think there should be like a little end note sticker there that just goes to the pale king at that point. Like, uh, you know, in, in a way, I guess that's, I mean, at the same time, I do wish he wrote more there, but if mm. you're interested in like following him there, there are some other stuff. Like that's something he, he has an interest in. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my own personal interpretation of that is I guess something being anti-interesting is it's kind of robbing something of uh, its preciousness that it's important. Like particularly if we're talking drinking and addiction and sobriety being the truth, you know, drinking is filled with drama, running away from demons by crawling under a weighted blanket made of other demons. But the truth of living without it is just dull. Like sobriety is, and again, this comes to the overall theme of the book. Sobriety is just boring. And it's learning to live with like, yeah, maybe life just needs to be boring. Maybe, you know, a Monday night at 11 o'clock, I'm supposed to be bored and then just go to bed as opposed to getting fucked up because I need to feel something. Yeah. And um, that almost kind of ties into like, this is water of like treating grocery grocery store shopping, not only as like something you do, but like sacred kind of like learning Mm. to find the interest in everything. I think the thing is like, talking about infinite jest um 
Wallace had a pretty short writing career, but if you were going to have like an early, a middle and a late stage for him, Infinite Jess is so weird because it took him so long to write that it almost covers all three. Like you can very much see pretentious English major. You can see, you know, someone really obsessed with postmodernism and entertainment, but also someone really obsessed with like changing your own attitude toward life to find some, you know, find the value in cliches, but also like find the boring tedium of life, like more interesting. And it's weird because there there is, there is beauty in the boring. It's just, yeah. Once you, the, the other thing people need to realize is that when you declare something boring, what you're really declaring is it's not worth spending your time on. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, oh, well, if this is boring, then you can shut your brain off. But by doing that, you're going to miss out on anything that would make it not boring. Right. So, um, Gately has dreams early on of the man he killed, the Canadian VIP with a shepherd's hook, which he sees as the AA enforcer, the thing that keeps him personally sober. Nice little vision there. Um, more details about Boston AA, how it's unique in that it has a break about 45 minutes in and lasts longer than standard national meetings. Gately chain smokes and makes himself available for people frustrating, but saves his own grapes for ferocious Francis, the crocodile after. He mentions a young yuppie guy named Erdity that Gately likes. Again, we realize this is the guy from very early in the book who was so obsessed about his pot dealer showing up and what she would think of him. Yeah. Um, yeah, Gately likes, though, notes that he's in there for marijuana addiction, which strikes Gately as crazy, but not for him to judge. We also re-meet, this is where we find out, like, oh, all these people we've kind of met are popping up. We re-meet yep. Kate Gompert, who we'd last seen chewing carpet in an asylum. Uh, she's described as shapely, but big-time trouble by Gately. He hasn't gotten into it yet, but, like, these addiction circles are known, like, dating somebody in the program is known as the 13th step. So it, it, it is a thing that happens. I'm curious how much he's going to get into it, particularly as he uh, sexualizes the females in this part, not only Gompert, but Joelle, but the yeah. female speaker that's going to come up at the end, who when she mentions she's a stripper, like all the men in the audience give a kind of involuntary, like up and down on her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I forget who it was that, that said something to the extent of like categorizing every female in the book as like, oh, she has some role of like saying something or something, or it's like just sex appeal and there's no in between. And I love the book, but that's absolutely true. Like there are a couple short, again, short stories, stories he's written where he writes female characters and it's like, there's no reason that they're female other than the fact that you wanted to like give them a boyfriend or mm-hmm. have some sex thing with it. See, this, this goes back into what we uh, determined. Well, it, it might just be my own thought on it. I'm making that. But uh, our own personal analysis, I remember I had a friend who, um, like, this is recent, who hadn't dated in a while. And he was talking about the kind of girls he was into. And he said, like, well, you know, I always kind of liked, uh, you know, tomboys. I, I like those girls, those girls that are cute, but they don't realize they're cute. And I had to explain to him, like, buddy, those, those girls realize they're cute. They're uncomfortable with sexual tension, which is part of the reason that they go tomboyish, which was, like, mind-blowing to him he'd never considered that like i i don't know i the older i get the more i feel bad for women i know i'm I'm gonna end up having a daughter and just like i just imagine being a father and walking down the street with like a teenage daughter and like just fucking dudes just looking at her and side-eyeing her like that's just 
I'm I'm so glad I'm not a woman. Ladies, you've you've had a rough go. I feel bad for you. That must be tough. Keep doing the hard work you do. Getting stared at. Um, oh, Gately remarks again, he doesn't miss marijuana. At, oh, uh, Gompert is in there for marijuana as well and is on a bunch of tranks for mental health reasons. Gately remarks again that he doesn't miss marijuana at all. Shockingly, he doesn't miss Demerol either, despite it being another heavy drug. Um, miracle is another term favored in Boston. It is an everyday, if sobriety is a miracle, don't leave five minutes before the miracle. Uh, Joelle prefers it to the standard grace of God due to her father's past as a preacher. Sorry, I'm just going to steamroll here just because we still have a lot. Um, yeah, sure. Erdity is here, which, okay, yeah, we talk about. Erdity uh, says Gately's words have made him feel the greenest he's felt in months. Gately likes how Erdity looks at him in a way that he shows has his full attention. He is, however, unaware that this is a prerequisite for white-collar jobs. Gately is still yet not a good judge of anything about upscale people, except where they tend to hide their valuables. Great line. Mm. So... Um, just a real quick brief rundown of all the characters we know in the room to just acknowledge some of the world building he's doing here. Uh, there's Gately, there's Joelle Van Dyne, Kate Gompert, Erdity, Tiny Yule, Dickhead Jeffrey Day, Bruce Green of Mildred Bonk fame, and Randy Lenz, who I don't think it's been revealed yet, but somebody told me that that is the man we know as yourself or himself, not himself, yourself or yours truly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fuck that guy. I don't want to learn more about him. Um, okay, we jumped the gun a little bit because here it is. Gate notes, Gately notes that Joelle is nicely shaped. Despite her veil, you can still tell when she's looking at you. Uh, there are half a dozen other veiled people milling around. They're the members of the affiliate union of the hideously and improbably deformed UHID because another acronym because DFW likes an acronym. Shocker. Joelle is the first veil. Oh, sorry, you got something? No, no, it's just, you know, he, he refers to the, his own book, like the movie version as IJ through the movie most of the time, through the book. So like, yeah, it's abbreviation the musical. That's a fun little tick for a person to have. Um, Joelle is the first veiled resident under Gately's staff supervision. He can tell she's connected to somebody as she completely skipped the wait list, no initial interview, which we know is her connection to himself and the incandenses that got her in here. Gately attempts to address Erdity and Joelle at the same time by alternating looks, which he's not good at because his head is too big for subtle movements. In case you forgot. Yeah. Uh, says how he couldn't take anything in the first two months because instead of identifying, he was comparing. Uh, I never lost a wife like them or rolled a car like them. This I did want to have a little talk about, uh, this idea of identification versus comparison, because a big thing you and I have a, a number of years between us, but like both the internet generation, uh, we're both aware of how social media has contributed to the rise of FOMO or fear of missing out, yeah. which I feel is the ultimate in comparison. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and just, he does hit the nail on the head very early. He's, I mean, it obviously has its, uh, its use in AA, but I feel like more people in the world, like, Particularly, I, I can only talk from a comedy perspective, is that because a lot of our promotion is done on social media and it's like, oh, I have a show here, I have a show there. So for me, social media is actively a sign of, in my career, like, oh, look who's doing better than you. They got this, they got this. Nobody called yeah. you for that, but here they are. They can't say anymore. And uh, yeah, not very... No, absolutely. Like my, my feeds are full of musicians, um performers, teachers, professors, composers, everything. And like, 
you know, you can very much feel the same thing. And sometimes you forget that you follow a thousand people and that you're seeing these every day. It's not always the same people. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's one guy doing the same thing every day, it's like, okay, he's doing better than me. But the thing that I always think about with this is like the danger of it is that you stop with anything, music, comedy, any art, craft, whatever business, you stop incentivizing doing good work for the sake of doing good work, but doing good work because you like the rush you get when you share it. And that you start to bend what you're doing into that lens. Like you start doing things, going places, whatever, for the sake of a social media presence and not because you want to or because it's what you think is most important. Like you're almost just trying to compete with everybody else's thing. And then suddenly you find yourself like doing something or taking a picture or whatever just to like share, but that you don't care about it all. And then it's like, what am I doing any of this for? Yeah. Another thing I feel worse for, for women, just because I've had my girlfriend talk about just how much she hates her looking at her friend's Instagrams, but then actively like, you know, she's taken the picture of like the super neat vegan dish at this fucking restaurant because she wants the world to know, but it's just, yeah, it, it is again, that comparison versus identity thing. Because, like, one of the infuriating things in comedy, particularly in the local scene, is you'll see a lot of people who are not good and they're not getting any better. But, like, this is their social scene. This is where all their friends are. Mm-hmm. And it could be very e- – well, it is very easy to be, like, fuck that person. They shouldn't be booked on anything ever. As opposed to, like, oh, yeah, that must be really hard to be in that position to kind of know you're a phony and everybody's doing better than you, but you get pity bookings on their shows. Like, that's not fun. Yeah, no, I think it's also important. Like I catch myself doing this sometimes or remembering like not that long ago, I sucked a lot. I still suck, but like I sucked a lot. And here I am judging people that do realizing I was in their position. Like, what am I gonna, you know, I can't criticize them. They just need time. Right. You have to, you have to be the person that's happy for other people because then when you get it one day, nobody's going to be happy for you unless you have been that guy who was happy for them. Right. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Francis and the Crocodiles tell Gately that young guys like him are great in that role to sincerely identify with the struggle of a newbie, that the Crocodiles have been sober long enough that for them to still sincerely identify with a disease-ridden newcomer is impossible. They're in a whole different galaxy of sobriety at this point. Don't need to talk about it too much, but I do love the idea of the people who are so good at it. They're off and they're, it, it's the difference between amateur and professional. Like, yeah, I feel for you, but not really, because that was a lifetime ago. Um, yeah. Erdity does his best to continue giving all his attention to Gately, despite also checking out Joelle. Her sloppy sweater is appealing to a base attraction of sloppy sexiness. I'm just going to let that sit there. That's, we all have our things. Sloppiness. Is, uh, I've heard worse turn-ons than that. Um, Joelle speaks for the first time in Rapturing Gately, reveals a slight southern accent that's familiar in a faraway way that makes it both familiar and yet certain he's never met her before. She has a beef with the phrase, but for the grace of God. Um, I actually could not pick out what exactly the issue was here. And I don't know if this is just me reading it wrong, but uh, Gately can't tell if she's serious or fucking around or trying to be a Jeffrey Day, trying to tear everything down to prove she doesn't really need it. Gately is struggling with the problem that with her veil and alluring body and clear intelligence, Gately has zero identification with her and no idea how to respond. Um, what exactly is her issue with But for the Grace of God, if you have that? Because I, I couldn't really parse it out. It's grammatical. 
Um, I like literally just that the sentence isn't the way it should be. And I remember at one point looking it up and like seeing, I think, does it say like what it's supposed to be instead or. It does. I did. I didn't write down the note for it, but I remember. Yeah, I think it did at something and it was like just moving the words around. And I remember looking it up, learning about it and then immediately forgetting it the next day because it's just not (laughs) something that ever comes up anywhere else. Okay, so I am identifying with Gately, who is just confused by the sexy lady, sounding like she's trying to throw a word riddle at me. Yeah, this um, is, I mean, I think this is just Wallace writing through the character to say, here's something I wanted to bitch about in terms of grammar. There's a couple things like, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's it's a little cringy, I think, too. Like, there was this um, interviewer that went to his house and had, like, a couple clips manifest from it i think it's on youtube this thing where wallace like talks about how much he hates people that use the word utilize uh-huh. instead of use because it's just used to sound smarter and like it, he says like in 99 percent of cases you're just using it to say smarter you could say uh use or the other one is prior to is just fancying up before but then the thing in the video is that he says what you want to say there, if we're going to be honest to the Latin roots anyway, is you say posterior to. And he's going like, and he's really aggressive and kind of snooty. And the mm-hmm. worst thing is he's wrong. Posterior to would mean after. What he meant to say is anterior to, because that would mean before. <laughs> so not only is he being a, he aggressively pretentious, but he's wrong in that instance. So like whenever he has these little moments here, I like, I kind of just go, ah, okay. There's a couple musical things too, that he says, like at one point a girl screams a high B sharp and it's kind of hard to explain. Um, no, no, a B sharp is a, a C. Yeah. It's like, there's like 1% of cases in like old classical music where a B sharp is the correct way to notate it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it's a C. And honestly, I'm just not going to give him credit to know the difference and just think that he opened up some like keyboard book or asked a friend and said, what notes should I pick? And that's <laughs> what it was. Them. <laughs> yeah. Like just, Oh yeah. <laughs> B sharp. And then just screwed him over. And you know, there's a couple things like that. I've always wondered like, I want to talk to like a pharmacist about this book and be like, is all this stuff, even though it's true, like, is this how people talk? Is this the real things? Or is he like clearly just kind of pulling straws sometimes? Because I can tell from my own field that he's guilty of it a few times too. Mm-hmm. He's very good at pulling the veil over people. Uh, speaking of the veil, the moment with Joel and Gately, oh, he, uh, his confusion, he feels a moment of panic at this that suddenly make it feels like it's feelings like this that will cause him to one day use again. The moment is interrupted by the great satanic Glenn Kay taking the podium, Mike, all dressed in his cape and candelabra for the raffle. Um, a guy with plenty of sober time wins the big book raffle, offers it to any newcomers, and it's taken up on the offer by Bruce, Bruce Green of Mildred Bonk fame. Mm-hmm. Gately quietly decides to discuss the moment of sexually induced sobriety panic with ferocious Francis G. later. A random thing here where they talk about the giant lady at Liberty Island. Like, which yeah. almost made me think we were going to a different chapter, but then we were right back to AA. Just, this is the Libertine statue, has a sun, you know, uh, our Statue of Liberty, a sun for a crown and holds a huge photo album and holds aloft the product of the year and the other, or other to be changed every year on January 1st. Yeah, I, I, I read once, like, I share your frustration about, like, the chapter vagueness in this book. Mm -hmm. And what I heard someone say is think about it more like episodes. Like everything is kind of like a scene or an episode Mm -hmm. or a skit. And then I think of these things as like commercials, like 
Same thing with like the medical attache, uh, like checking in on him yeah. every now and then and being like, hey, by the way, he's still drooling over himself and things are getting bad. But it's just like this one isolated thing. I kind of think of it as just like, you know, in case you were wondering, here's a quick little thing before we return to the program. That's an interesting way to look at it, actually, because I have been thinking it, early on, I, I learned to look at these as sketches, made them a bit more digestible. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was nice. Uh, Gately says the most punishment inflicted on a commitment speaker is the crowd being embarrassed for him. Like the guy on stage now who sounds over rehearsed and is making fun of the program rather than himself. The crowd does not want to be pandered to by what the speaker thinks it wants. A different speaker, still white and newly sober, succeeds in speaking, telling a story about being so hungover at work every day, he developed a system of going under his desk and pretending to hammer something every time somebody came in. At the end, revealing he'd lost his job when somebody figured out where to deliver a complaint about the complaint <laughs> department, getting a great roar of ID out of the white flaggers and the crocodiles. Uh, Gately thinks the speaker has to be telling the truth for it to be important. Meanwhile, he's stuck thinking about Joelle and whether her statement was ironic. Boston AA is completely unironic. I like this line. An ironist here is a witch at church. Same with <laughs> fake sincerity, something so familiar and painful to the people here, they develop six senses about it. No one needs to be as fake sincere as often as addicted people, convincing the world and themselves that everything is great. Yeah, I, oof, I do not like fakely sincere people. And unfortunately, I've had enough experience that I can pick it out myself now. Um, yeah, and I think even Wallace kind of comes under that lens sometimes himself. Like, mm. you know, people have questioned, like, is the whole severe doubting yourself thing real or is it just your way to make yourself seem more humble when everything you write is being accused of being so pretentious yeah it's a it's a pretty good shield against that and it's also hard not to think that somebody who thought this hard about everything else would somehow like oh that was in his blind spot he wouldn't make that up you know exactly Um, paradoxically, many early members still run on false sincerity, saying the platitudes, whether they believe it yet, admitting they're alcoholics, whether they believe it or not. I I do like the juxtaposition of fake sincerity being not what they, it's not what they want because they kind of have to run on it to a certain degree. Right. So it's, it's not being opposed to fake sincerity. It's that they're full more or less. The fake Mm -hmm. until you make it slogan. Gately has to admit some surly new folk that AA can be a bit culty and brainwashy. He personally justifies this as after a life of addiction and burglary, his brain could probably use a good washing. Uh, Less brainwashing, but resembles it because it's actually a deprogramming. I think that's a really good. Yeah, Yeah, I I like that too. Um, All right. So we're coming up to the, the big story here. Uh, the other thing besides false sincerity that's hated is blame for your troubles on anybody but yourself. The example being the young woman on stage now saying she became an addict because she'd been forced to become a stripper at 16 because she'd been forced to run away from a foster home. The group knows she is not keeping it simple, which is short for keep it simple, stupid, which, uh, in my particular chunk of New Jersey, kiss clubs are where a lot of the AAs happen, which that's what it stands for. Keep it simple, stupid. So I randomly knew the meaning of that acronym at like six years old because there was one right up the street. Um, Okay, so we get to the story here. The girl on stage explains her foster parents had a biological daughter that was paralyzed and retarded and catatonic. I'm using his words. But the mother was in denial and demanded the foster girl and father treat her as completely normal. The foster girl had to take her to sleepovers and parties and treat her as one of the gals. 
the mother would dress her in the latest fashions and do her makeup, which just looked grotesque on a catatonic. The mother then pulled a reverse taming of the shrew scenario where the foster could only go on dates if the invalid went on double dates along with her. She's treated very much like an object here, but if we're being serious, that is, it's kind of how everybody in her world treats her, so. Um, yeah, well, she's reduced to it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, the fucked up part, we've only heard the mother so far. If We find out the father was way more fucked up and had been molesting his invalid daughter and that he would put a mask of Raquel Welch on her when he would violate her, sometimes forgetting to remove the mask after. This all happened with the foster daughter wide awake in the same bedroom pretending to sleep. She'd clean the girl up afterwards in the fear that if the mother found out and made a stink, it would be her, the foster, who would be recast as Raquel in her stead. One night, she'd had to turn the lights on after the mask had been entangled in her hair, and the lit-up, paralytic, post-diddle face had been enough to send her running out into the night. A horrifying pleasure face from a brain that couldn't compute the horror being inflicted upon it. Coincidentally, matched the expression of a Catholic statue in the house that the mother prayed to every day. Jesus Christ. That I forgot was at the end of this. Like, cause I enjoy a lot of the AA speakers cause they can be funny and like they tell uh, these very real stories. And then I was like, oh my God, wait, this one. And I was just like, oh shit. <laughs> well, see, I, I do love that she tells that story and we're kind of led into it thinking like, oh, she's giving too much detail and making everybody feel weird. And then he just drops in there that like half the people in here have worse stories than that. Yeah, yeah. Which is just, ugh. it's insane the fucking... I don't think it's come up yet for you, but um, the peanut butter one, I think, is the one that sticks with me the most. So I have no idea what the peanut butter one is about, so I'm going to have fun with this moment without that knowledge. Just say, I enjoy peanut butter. Chunky style is my favorite. I like it on toast. Uh, these are my only connections to peanut butter as of this moment. So if you enjoy this book just uh, keep that in mind that that's going to be a change in soon, I guess. It's not too messed up. It's just a very sad story that has to do with peanut butter and is sad because of peanut butter in a way. It's weird. I I can't explain it without giving it up. So I'll just stop. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. God, just the revelation of that face, which I actually had to reread it to make sure I was reading it right. That the thing that was so horrific about it is that it was a look of pleasure on the girl's face Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, it's a barely functioning, a barely functioning brain can't think. The only thing it can really do is feel. So to feel sexual pleasure with none of just, you're just robbed of the other senses and faculty to realize that it's, it's like getting a hot poker up your ass and it feels like ice cream. Like yeah, horror, true horror. Um, okay. Faces in the hall are averted and clutched and posture shifted. However, the self-pity is unneeded as most of the people in the room have actually had it far worse. It's encouraged in AA to avoid all the whys of addiction. AA is not about explaining or understanding, merely overcoming and outwitting and surviving. The real axiom is almost pseudo-fascist that rules, of all, that rules all of AA permanently engraved in a plastic seat of a chair in Ennett House. Do not ask why if you don't want to die. Do like you're told if you want to get old. Yeah, so can I ask you a question here? Go for it. If that was the end of the book... Just like trying to take a step back for a second. And I know that I'm on an I Hate Infinite Chess podcast, but like Mm -hmm. if that was the end of the book, forgetting like the plot lines and everything, 
would you still say you hate it or would you say like what would what would be your take um at this point just from what you've read my take my take would be like hey, you know what that was a weird ending but you know what 370 pages wasn't that much of you know time suck from my life so yeah i would be fine with that the, the, the actual note I have here, most examples of things that should have happened in the first 150 pages. Captivating, compelling, paints a clear picture of Ennit House and what these characters are living through, their motivations and stakes. But nope, sorry, we need seven pages on the technical specs for a fictional stand-in for a DVD player. Like, that's the part that fucking annoys me. Because this is good writing. This is objectively yeah. good writing. Can, well, I'm surprised to hear you say that. A little bit happy to hear it, but could I, um, maybe we could compare this to something. Uh, do you remember the first time, I'm just going to assume you've seen it, the first time you watched The Sixth Sense? Yes. What were your thoughts if you took out the last 10 minutes? Like, do you remember what you oh, were fu thinking? Fuck, that, that movie would have been uh, what I felt. Uh, you know, I thought it was scary enough for the time, you know, there's that crazy jump cut where the girl pukes, and I actually thought yeah. it was neat. Like, oh, the, the 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 mother poisoned her. I thought there was enough neat stuff going on there that it could have maybe survived without the twist. Okay, because I sort of see this the same way. Like, I, I'm not saying that there's a twist or not, because I think that in and of itself can ruin someone's reading. Mm -hmm. But what I imagine this book as, maybe this is a bit of a spoiler. So, is that all right? I go for it. I don't care. Okay. It's so not going to ruin. This book has been spoiled for me. Yeah, I know it's not really going to have an ending, and we're not really sure what happens to fucking. Happen. Well, so what I'll say to that is, the thing is, like, different levels of art have different barriers. Like, if you watch Seinfeld, you don't have to do any work. You sit on the couch for twenty minutes, and regardless of if you're really engaged or not, it happens. But then, like, if you listen to music, you see a piece of art, you have to do a little work. Like it will happen, but you have to think about what to listen to and like, what are you interacting with? Or at a piece of art, like you could not look at the most important part, there is some work. And then like for me at the height is like video games or puzzles or something where you literally cannot complete the thing unless you show some competence along the way. Like something like Dark Souls, just for to throw it out there. like you have to be pretty good to even complete the story. Like that's a big barrier. And the thing is like books fall somewhere in the middle too, because you have to like sound every word in your head and get through it, but you don't have to have any understanding. And the thing is, I think what Wallace wanted to do was create a piece of art that had barriers in it, like video games or puzzles that books normally can't have. And he made it so that when you get to the end, you realize it's not the end. Like it's such a disappointment for something that was so good prior. Sorry, I should say before. Something that was so good before, <laughs> I caught myself, that you have to realize that there's more and that you go back and do it again. And like what I compare it to is like if the sixth sense, it does all the work for you at the end. It doesn't say, oh, we're leaving on a mysterious note. Go back and realize Bruce Willis is dead. It shows you, it like cuts the literal scenes where they put the work in. This book has the same thing. There are scenes throughout that I've heard you talk with guests about and totally skip over things that are going to be those Sixth Sense moments. And the thing is, like, if no one told you that about the book and you don't think to go back, then it's not your fault. He failed you. His job and, like, what he tried to do with it didn't work, and that's his mm -hmm. fault. But if you go back and you start reading things again, either a full run-through or really just knowing, like, oh, this was a weird part. Let me go back and look at it 
there is more story. And I think it's so cool to have a book where when you finish, you're not done. And that he was able to actually make like not two stories, but a story where when you finish the book, you're only halfway through and yet you actually have to do some work. And that's not for everybody. And I don't think it's like, people say like, oh, you didn't get through Infinite Jest, you're not smart enough. I don't think it has anything to do with smart because there are some big words in here, but like you can make it through. I wasn't reading a whole lot before this and I made it through what I think it's more of as a test of patience. Right. Are- it is kind of obstructionist of itself. And I'm, I'm seeing that just in how it's getting looser and like it's getting so much more interesting as we go along. Like it, we're getting there, but you definitely... I guess it's kind of, you know, he wanted us to jump over a few hurdles so that by the time we got to the good stuff, we were better at jumping over hurdles. So we were used to it. Yeah. And that like, I think for me, the thing is you get to the end and it's going to end in a weird way. And you're going to say, what about this plot point? Or like, what about this? Or, but it was such a good book. Otherwise he makes it so obvious that something is wrong that you have to go back. And again, if he doesn't, that's not your fault. It's his, but you know, I think when you go through it again, it's sort of like the sixth sense. If it didn't give you that if it didn't give you what you wanted at the end. And it's kind of like if the sixth sense ended in a weird way and you were like, wait, but what about Bruce Willis's character? And you were, it was good enough that you were encouraged to watch it again, either immediately or like in a couple years, it would be really cool to have a movie that the second time is almost more rewarding than the first. And like, I'll, I'll, I'll admit like any book that, that people are like, oh, you have to read it two times or three times, or it's an infinite jest. Like, all right, go screw yourself. But I think the thing is with this book to some extent, like there was definitely that intention. And I'm not saying it's for everybody. People think that this is an everybody book. I'm not saying it's only for smart people. I think it's only for people that have a lot of time, which Mm. quarantine is perfect for, and like are willing to give the author that benefit of the doubt, which it's totally fine if you're not, but those barriers are there and I see them and I hope that I can kind of convince you that they're there for a reason. Okay. All right. It's a, somebody wrote me this week and they said, when the podcast is over, you should just do it over again and see what you brought to it, which uh, I, I so don't want to, not because of the book itself. It's just, there's so much other things I want to read and yeah. just making the notes for this does take up a lot of time, but uh, I feel yeah. like I, I might have to. The brother's Karamazov is a nice carrot at the end. I think it's waiting for also, me. <laughs> yeah. Alyosha, to- save me. I have to say like maybe what could be worth it is like one or two. I also think it'd be hilarious to not do the last episode, but also like I would be so- <laughs> <laughs> if I just, I, I need to like stretch it out and just do like three footnote episodes in between. But yeah. the, the thing is like you, you could probably get to what needs to be done if you did one or two episodes after the end where people okay. came on and talked. The problem is, and this is the other part where I think most fans will hate me. Like we're living in the Google age and I think most people just Googled it when they were done right. and they just went on and said, what happened or what did this? And there are some great resources and like it does the work for them. And it, like, if you read that, you kind of feel shitty because you're like, man, he failed me. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. a patient enough person to do it. I was lucky because I did Google it at the end, but I found something that was like, just so you know, there are things, but you're not supposed to know them yet. Give it another try and then do this. And I was like, okay, well, I liked it. I'm willing to do that. But if that wasn't there, I would have just cheated. And the thing mm-hmm. is, I think maybe this is unsubstantiated and I'm going to change my Twitter handles and things after this podcast. Okay. I think most fans these days are cheating and it's not that they mean Ooh. to, and they don't even know that they are. But I think most people, when they get to the end, don't pass the test 
which again is half Wallace's fault and maybe a little bit your own if you're impatient and it's fine. Like who has the time to read it twice? Seriously. But you know, I do think that most people that are probably writing in and that are getting offended and everything have, and like saying all this, you're saying it because they read it and not because they mm-hmm. lived it. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. The people who have written in negative things have been, it, that, that was very early on. Those were, it, it was my own thing where I kind of had to articulate a little bit like, Guys, it's just called the I Hate Infinite Jet <laughs> podcast. It's, it, it's it, you know, it, it's attention-grabbing. See, you're writing me. Don't hate me, please. Yeah. But, uh, okay. Wow. So, Ryan, thank you very much for doing this. You had, you had a lot of insight. I'm, I, I like that. I like people who really have gotten in and, like, swished around in this book and, you know, know the tides of it. Yeah, I'm happy to. And if you do get hate mail, no one has my email. You can forward it to me, and I'll, I'll sift through it. Okay, so recipient of all future hate mail, Ryan Gallick. Uh, again, that's ryangallick.com? Yeah. Yep. Oh, I guess they could email me there. So I'll change uh, that domain too. Okay, well. <laughs> I'll move to Canada. I'll become a uh, Quebec, Quebecois. Quebecois wheelchair assassin. I, I had to look up the pronunciation for this podcast. It is Quebecois. <laughs> All right, Matt, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, As we end every episode, I am going to stop recording now, but you and I can still talk for a minute or two. Bye. All right, thanks.